Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm Danny V, podcast host and children's author. I also do some work in publishing in acquisitions and publicity. As we hurdle towards one million plays, we'll continue to provide you with the conversational, vulnerable, honest and fun chats with your favourite authors across all genres. Check out our takeover episodes, usually released on a Friday, and our spin-offs released during the month. Thank you for being here, being part of the journey, and supporting Aussie Creatives. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I'm super excited to welcome back Gabriel Bergmoser, an award-winning Melbourne-based author and playwright. He won the Sir Peter Ustinov Television Scriptwriting Award in 2015 and was nominated for the 2017 Kenneth Brunner Awards for New Drama Writing. In 2016, his first young adult novel, Boone Shepherd, was shortlisted for the Readings Young Adult Prize. His first novel for adults, The Hunted, is a bestseller and a film adaption is currently being developed. In 2022, Audible original novella, The Hitchhiker, spent a month at number one in the audible bestseller chart today we're going to talk about the caretaker gabe is there anything you can't do um you have a social life uh, apparently <laughs> is is where, where you know the balance clearly starts to fall off mm, mm. look highly highly overrated um especially when you keep oh, all these goals really oh not remotely necessary like not in the slightest <laughs> i do see you turn up to the little you know, Melbourne author get-togethers we have when you can. So there's a smidge of a social life there. A little bit, yeah. But it's like I kind of feel like because we're all authors, we all get together and we all just talk about work. Correct. So you're not including that as relaxation time? <laughs> no, no, it is definitely relaxation because it's like it's, it's kind of like uh, I feel like it's sort of almost close to therapy at that point, you know, because <laughs> we get together and it's sort of like all of the stresses of this like particularly unique vocation that we've all somehow decided to like, you know, bury ourselves in. Like it's kind of good to, you know, chat with people who are sort of in the same scene and sort of deal with the same frustrations and everything. So, but, you know, like it, yeah, that, that's that's the sort of you know therapeutic side of it i think oh absolutely it's free therapy and i'm here for it now today we are going to talk about the caretaker so hit me with an elevator pitch so basically the caretaker is a standalone novel about a young woman named charlotte who is on the run we don't initially know what from we just know that there is something really bad that has happened to her that she is fleeing from she's living under a fake name she's taken a job as the off-season caretaker of a tiny little ski resort about three hours away from civilization there's no one else up there it's just her by herself as far as she can tell nobody knows where she is or nobody would think to look for her here and then basically one day a mysterious man turns up who claims to be a writer who's hired one of the lodges. And he's kind of very friendly and avuncular and charming. And Charlotte kind of slowly starts trusting, let her guard down a little bit. And then bit by bit, weird things start happening around the resort. Uh, she starts to realize that all of her escape routes have been cut off one by one. Basically, her car stops working, her sort of survival pack that she's made for herself disappears. Other weird things start happening. And Charlotte's kind of forced to wonder if her new friend is somebody from her past who's come looking for her if she's imagining it or if something much, much darker is going on. So there's a few other complicating factors that sort of come in throughout the book, but basically at its core, The Caretaker is fundamentally a book about an extremely paranoid person whose every paranoid fear is actually true. And that is the title of my anxiety. 
Yeah, <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and that's actually like, you know, because it's funny, like every book you write, you always know that there's, um you know, there's always a theme. There's always something it's about. And sometimes you go in knowing that. Sometimes you go in being like, I know what this book is going to be about. I know sort of what the central theme is and what I'm here to talk about and everything. And sometimes you don't. And in writing The Caretaker, I I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really know what the central theme was. I sort of thought, you know, is it, is it, fear is it responsibility is it um is it you know the, the, is it guilt like I wasn't really sure but then as I kind of finished it and started going you know a little bit more on the press circuit with it it sort of came to me I was like oh it's a book about paranoia and I'm inherently quite an anxious person as well and I find myself I guess believing in almost every worst case scenario in any situation that's, you know, I'm one of those people where it's I feel like, you know, somebody I feel like if someone doesn't text you back immediately, I'm kind of like, what have I done? Why do they hate me? What's going on? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so. Someone I, texts I think, you or rings you in the middle of the night and it's obviously a disaster happens. Somebody's right? died yeah. or something's yeah. gone wrong Definitely. or whatever, you know, mm. so, so, you know, hundred percent, I, I like, I feel that. And so I think, you know, subconsciously what I wanted to do with this book was like, was kind of unpack that a little bit and be kind of like, all right, what if you were a really paranoid person with, you know, far better reasons to be paranoid than I have in my life in that she actually has got stuff that she's running from and escaping from that is really bad. But what if all of those fears turned out to be true? You know, what, how would you deal with that? How would you cope with that? What would that do to you? And that I think, and, and the thing is saying that makes it sound like there was any intention or design whatsoever, but I just think subconsciously that's kind of what emerged and that's mm. sort of how it fell into place. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you do have that anxious energy, which we do share, Gabe. Um, I think that is always living in your subconscious, like you said, you know, even when you're not feeling anxious, you get that weird phone call or you don't get the text or, or you know, you're thinking those worst case scenarios. And usually, usually, Gabe, counsellors will say, but 99.9% .9 of those things that you imagine never come true. And then you read The Caretaker. Oh, I feel so guilty now. <laughs> It's very funny. We know it's fiction, but no, I think it is. It is interesting to unpack that kind of brain because, um, you know, I think, well, you've, you've written this fantastic novel that, you know, you realized at some point. So when did you realize at some point that that was kind of what it was about? Well, not really, not until after the book was finished. I mean, and it's funny because, you know, like it's like, like going back to what I said before about like, you don't, you don't always know, what the theme is and it's funny because when I was at film school I remember us being hit over and over and over again with the concept of the controlling idea that everything yeah. you write has to have a controlling idea like some some centralized theme or message or question that unites everything and at uni I kind of railed against that a little bit because to me it sounded incredibly restrictive like even even the term controlling idea sounds yeah. controlling for what you know in my head at the time should have been quite a like you know free almost like almost spiritual art form and at, you know so I kind of pushed back against it and I remember sort of arguing with my tutor at one point and saying but you know my book's about more than just one idea and he just said about missing a beat if your book is about everything it's about nothing <laughs> and that stuck with me because it's very true and what I kind of came to realize and what sort of helped me with that was that when I looked back over everything I'd written pre-doing that master's everything did have a theme. Yeah. Everything always had some central thing that it was about. And there was always a point, whether it's during the writing process, before the writing process or after the writing process, that you realize it. Now, the, the, the whole concept of a theme or a controlling idea, at least in terms of uh, writing techniques, 
it, it's like knowing what it is just helps you cohere the story, you know, because if you know what your story is about, then you're much more able to make sure that every aspect of the story is working in concert to support what that central idea of the story is. But, you know, sometimes it's not clear and you just kind of have to write through it to find it. And like, I've been listening to the fantastic audiobook of The Caretaker read by Jim McCarthy uh, for the last week or so. And it's funny because I look back and I go, okay, like, we're always critical of our own work. And yet I kind of go, well, weirdly, given that I wasn't sure what the book was about in the writing process, I kind of feel like that thread of paranoia and fear and anxiety is kind of what runs throughout it and what does sort of unite all of it. And the book is kind of, I mean, I actually think Weirdly the Caretaker is almost my most hopeful novel because it is kind of a story about, all right, so let's say that you are anxious, let's say you are paranoid, and let's say that everything you are scared of is true. The kind of message of the book is, but you can deal with it. You can survive and you can live and you will be able to get through this. And that is kind of what the ultimate message of the book is. Even though I don't really like using the term messages because I think that's kind of, you know, hackneyed and reductive. But I think that is what the book's about at its heart. Yeah, I was actually, <laughs> my next point was the resilience you find through your anxiety. And then when you're finally at the other end of your anxiety, because when you're in it, it's like, am I ever going to be able to, you know, sink to the so float to the top again it just does what you're sinking and so you really write about the resilience part of it and and digging deep and going wow like i am stronger than i think i am more resilient than i think and i do actually have all these skills that you know i didn't know i had so i really liked that about the book well it's it's funny because i think um in some ways i i, I sort of couldn't write this book without being hugely aware of the fact that my last two adult thrillers both focused also on a young woman on the run, but a very different young woman on the run. So, you know, Maggie and Charlotte, like, like Maggie is an extremely capable character who is very shoot first, ask questions later, very, you know, she's ruthless, she's violent, she's dangerous. Her whole superpower and where the, I guess, the excitement, the drama in her storytelling comes from is the fact that she has the capability to be just as dangerous as the people who she's regularly put up against. Whereas Charlotte isn't like that at all. Like Charlotte just wants to be left alone. Charlotte is fearful. She's anxious. She's constantly on edge. She's extremely paranoid as we've discussed. And all she wants is for no one to ever find her. All she wants is just to kind of like hide away from the world, never be seen again. She doesn't want to hurt anyone. She doesn't want to get in any danger. She doesn't want to be hurt. Whereas Maggie kind of almost charges headfirst into that. And so, you know, part of the thrill of writing The Caretaker was saying, okay, I mean, if you put Maggie in this exact same circumstance, the book would be over in two seconds. Like she would have, you know, the, the threats that come towards Charlotte throughout this book, Maggie would have dispatched immediately without even delving any deeper into, you know, the, the full nature of the threats or or whatever it might have been. Whereas Charlotte, you know, Charlotte's a lot more like the rest of us. Charlotte is a lot more like, you know, she doesn't want to assume the worst in people. She doesn't want to assume the worst in her circumstances, but she does because she has that kind of simmering fear and anxiety throughout her. And part of the conflict in the book is, Charlotte's own indecisiveness. And I know that that's frustrating to some readers where they kind of go, you know, why, why can't she just act? And I'm like, well, that's the whole point. And part of the book is why isn't she just acting when the circumstances are clearly getting more and more dangerous? And I think the answer to that question does sort of come towards the end of the book without spoiling anything. But one of the best bits of feedback I got was from a friend of mine who just finished reading it the other day. And she said to me, it's funny because like, Maggie kind of feels like this exceptional anti-hero super, superhero character in some respects, whereas Charlotte just kind of feels like one of us. And that, I think, has its own 
dramatic friction that can be really exciting, even if the character isn't necessarily as gung-ho as the previous one might have been. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a different experience for the reader, just as your friend said, because Maggie is kind of who we want to be and who we hope we'd be if we got stuck in those situations. But Charlotte is probably who we are. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and that was, and that was kind of thrilling to me, you know, because like, yeah. I like, and the thing is, I think the, the other difference is that like Charlotte, I think is sort of done after this book. Like I, I do have another story about her, but it, it's more somebody else's story that she appears in. So a lot of the flashback material throughout the caretaker, I've, I've got a very, very extensive background to sort of what was going on behind the scenes that Charlotte wasn't privy to and involving her, her drug lord husband and some of the people around him. And I really want to write that book one day. And so if I ever get to write that book, then you'll see a lot more of Charlotte in that, but set before the events of the caretaker. Whereas in terms of what is actually her story and her narrative and her arc, I think it begins and ends in The Caretaker. I don't think she comes back for a string of sequels, whereas Maggie is a character who I can continuously come back to and enjoy writing about and hope to write about for a long time yet. But with with The Caretaker, there was immense satisfaction in not writing, I guess, an episode from someone's life, which all the Maggie books ultimately are, but writing the story of someone's life and the story, or not her whole life, because she's still quite young at the end of the book, but the most significant defining events of her life that have shaped, have turned her from one person to someone very different. And I, I wanted to say as well about your thrillers. I mean, we talked about you writing quite quickly and these books, you know, we talk about, they have a lot of pace, particularly, you know, both of them, even though they're very different characters, the, I think you're very good at pacing. And do you think that is because you just write really quickly? Because I think it was this book we just talked about and you said, oh, I haven't started it yet. It's due really soon, but I think I've got this idea. And then all of a sudden it was finished. I'm like, wow, that's really <laughs> impressive. Um, so do you think the pace in which you write helps to shape the pace of the novel? Uh, look, I mean, firstly, before I answer that, I, I want to say that, like, it, it probably seems impressive until you read the first draft manuscripts. And then, you know, as my publishers would attest, you know, they're not necessarily in the most healthy shape when they are delivered. But yeah, I mean, look, it probably, probably, yes. The Caretaker, I deliberately tried to slow down in. And one of the reasons for that was because when I did The Hitchhiker, the Audible original that came out last year, Part of my process in writing that was to to really just try to like slow the pace down and create more of a slow burn narrative based on tension rather than constant nonstop action, which is sort of more what characterized the hunted and the inheritance. And I obviously had such welcome and unexpected success with the hitchhiker with it, you know, hitting number one on Audible and it being chosen for the editor's extra and, and all of those things. And, you know, it was it was a real kind of like, you know boost for my career when that happens and so while I'd kind of already been working on the hitchhiker when oh sorry on the caretaker when all that happened for the hitchhiker that just sort of reinforced to me that I was like okay so I can I can go slower like I think historically I've been quite fearful about boring the audience and I think one of the reasons for that is like some of my early plays you know were not very pacey they've kind of like you know dripped you know sort of drifted along and everything and took their time and I became hypersensitive when sitting in the audience for those plays that the audience was bored, that people kind of weren't reacting, people were checking their phones, looking around and everything. And so I think for a few years there, my go-to method was to basically just make a book as fast as humanly possible. And I think the lesson that I kind of had learned at that point as a, as a nascent writer was, was that, you know, a slow burn can be just as riveting as a fast-paced thriller 
it's just it's just harder to make good, you know, and it's often more satisfying when it is good and it's more engaging for the reader because it relies on a different skill set. I mean, it's not it's not the kind of thing of like throwing as much action and instant at the wall as possible to try to keep the reader entertained. It requires you to kind of trust in your own writing, to trust in your reader a little bit more. But I think the hitchhiker kind of proved that I could do that. And and it's funny because the hitchhiker is often referred to as being really fast paced. And so was the caretaker. But I go, well, yeah, but they're, they're both like, you know, they both kind of moved a crawl compared to the hunted or the inheritance, you know. But I think that's more a testament to like how frenetic my earlier books were. <laughs> you know, that, that these books that are still actually quite fast paced and quite quick can be seen in that same way. So so yeah, look, I think I think in in short, yes, the speed at which I write and the kind of uh, coming back to the the controlling idea of this conversation, the anxiety of ever boring the reader <laughs> certainly factors into how fast paced the books are. But at the same time, I, I think I've learned from this book and the previous one that there is something to be said for just hitting the brakes a little bit and letting the story breathe because that actually allows you the chance to let tension flourish a bit more and. In, in if done well and i'm not in a position to say whether that's the case in these books but if done well that actually can draw your reader in more as opposed to alienating them mm, the evolution of gabe's writing i love it and yeah. you know it's it's obvious how action appeals to us because you know all these different things are happening and happening to the character and we're looking at how they can you know get out of it or resolve it or whatever but how do you make a slow burn work it's, it's all down to tension. Like, it's all absolutely down to tension. But, like, tension poses its own challenges because how do you how do you create suspense? How do you make readers tense? And I guess I always go back to the Hitchcock. We've possibly spoken about this on the podcast before, but I always go back to the Hitchcock principle of suspense, which is if you have two characters sitting at a table having conversation, a bomb goes off and blows them both to smithereens, that's not tension because we, we don't know that we're supposed to be scared of anything. You might get a scare out of it, but you won't really feel anything building up to it. If you have two characters sitting there at the table having conversation and the camera pans under the table and reveals the ticking bomb before panning back up, now you're tense because you know that there is some threat coming. And then your job becomes, because that, that ticking bomb might give you five to 10 minutes of screen time. You know, that might have five to 10 minutes of the audience being like, all right, is it going to go off? Is it going to go off? Is it going to go off? And if you let that sit by itself for too long, then sooner or later the audience will go, well, it's never going to go off. So I kind of don't care. And you lose that tension. So then your job becomes, how do I add new elements to up the tension? You know, do I have one of the characters at the table dropping their keys and bending down to pick them up and almost seeing the bomb. And that will kind of pull the audience in where they're kind of being like, all right, no, 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 see the bomb, see the bomb, it's right there, it's right there. Do I have them discover the bomb, but then they can't leave the restaurant because the police are called and they're all locked down and they're stuck and then they have to find another way out. You know, how do you complicate the tension and ramp it up and ramp it up and ramp it up? So with the caretaker, the challenge was, how do I introduce from the start that there is a threat and how do I add new elements to the threat to always make it more and more tense? And then, of course, the other challenging thing is that tension kind of means nothing if there's no payoff. Like, eventually, there has to be some kind of payoff. And I always think about the best example of tension I think maybe I I've ever seen in terms of just like an episode from a movie 
is the La Louisiane scene in the Inglorious Bastards. You know, when the so the undercover soldiers go into the tavern to meet up with their contact, Bridget von Hammersmark, who's the Diane Kruger, the movie star character. And they're in there having a meeting to talk about their plans. And then a Nazi officer comes and joins them. And he very clearly suspects them. And they play this game. And the whole time, the tension is mounting, 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 as you're waiting for whether or not he's going to figure them out. And the bomb under the table is the the literal Nazi officer right there. And it's this 20-minute sequence that just gets more and more white-knuckled, impossible to watch. And then it explodes in the most chaotic, cathartic kind of ballet of blood and insanity at the end of that scene. It's it, it's effectively a short film in its own right. And so to me, it's like the, the thing about introducing a bomb under the table is that at some point, the bomb has to go off. So with The Caretaker, I kind of gave myself three quarters of the book to ramp up the tension, to add new elements, to complicate it, to twist it, to ramp it up, ramp it up, ramp it up, ramp it up. But at a certain point, you can't do that anymore. Like at a certain point, you have to release it. And so the last quarter of the book, I just let it go completely wild. Like I just let it go completely, you know, unhinged and unleashed and all over the place as everything kind of like comes to the forefront and blows up. And based on the reviews and what I've been hearing and everything, that seems to have worked. But, um, but you know, again, it's still a relatively new mode of writing for me. So the fact that the book is selling and doing well and being well-received is kind of a massive source of relief for me because this is not necessarily my comfort zone. So the fact that it's worked on any level is just, you know, that's, I can breathe again. <laughs> and it is really interesting how over time your writing has evolved and not really consciously, but just because of, you know, the natural, I guess, evolution of a writer. So it's interesting where you'll go next. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, I feel like if you're not evolving and mm. changing and challenging yourself, you're, you're stagnating, yeah. right? Like, and, you, and that's the last thing you want to do. Like, and look, I I wonder if like, and I, when I say early in my career, I mean, we're talking like three years ago, <laughs> but I, I wonder if like earlier on, I I pivoted too drastically too quickly, mm -hmm. like in going yeah. from the hunted to true color to the white line. At the time I took that as, I took the fact that I managed to have two such vastly different novels published in the space of a year as kind of a, as, as a point of pride, I guess, that like, oh, look at what I can do. I can do this and I can do this as well. But I do wonder if to some degree that confused my readers a little bit because, mm -hmm. you know, the people who would read True Color and White Lie aren't necessarily the people who would read The Hunted. You know, there, there is there are some crossovers, but yeah. for the most part, they're vastly different books with vastly different audiences. And I, I do wonder if maybe there was a little bit of like, well, who, who the hell is this guy? What is he right? <laughs> Whereas... Now it's like, it's not to say that I don't, I, I won't pivot again because I mean, my very next book, Andromache Between Worlds is like a middle grade adventure novel. So it's a very different thing again. But at the same time, it's like, I think that, I think that maybe the shifts between something like The Inheritance to The Caretaker are a little bit more, they they still kind of are in the same vein, even if they're doing slightly different things. And by by not pivoting so drastically straight away, I think you allow yourself to get a little bit better as opposed to kind of like wildly swing to the next thing rather than developing what you've already got. Which is interesting. And I think you kind of, maybe you did have to go from one end to the other of the pendulum then to swing back in the middle. So it's really interesting, your journey, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm still very proud of the true color of the white lie. I think it's probably my favorite of all my books, but you know, it's, it's undeniable that it didn't make the same splash as the hunted. And you do at a certain point have to kind of question why that is. And, 
and maybe it was too different too quickly. And maybe now that I've sort of had the chance to sort of do the kind of like go from the inheritance to the consequence of the hitchhike to the caretaker. It's like, I think I'm maybe in a bit of a more steady rhythm now. And so I feel a bit more confident pivoting with the next book, The Andromache Between Worlds, because I feel like instead of creating a weird sense of whiplash, it now is kind of more of a, and now I can do something a bit different. Now I've sort of earned the chance to do something that is in a very different field to what I've done before. Maybe, I don't know. We'll see. It could we'll come see. out. People Absolutely. Will hate it, so fingers crossed. <laughs> Now, we talked a little bit about your script writing previously, and I know that you've been making a film as well, and then you've switched gears to a middle grade. How do these creative pursuits feed into each other and how do they cross over? I'm interested in how they feed one another. Look, honestly, honestly, the disciplines aren't all that different. Like, I don't... So Andromache Between Worlds, the middle grade, like, I don't think I wrote that drastically differently to how I would write the caretaker or the hunter. I think the, the biggest difference maybe is that there's more, hu- like there's a lot more humor, obviously like Andromache is, I think it's a very funny book. I think it might be my funniest book, but it's also a, ultimately a story about a young girl kind of learning who her parents are and learning who she is and everything. So it still kind of has like, like quite a, quite a, you know, serious and relatable core to it as well. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of more the, the way you dress up the stories. I mean, obviously I, I, I'll swear a lot less in the middle grade. Um, there'll be less decapitations and everything. And I mean, in, in the case of the film, like that's been a really interesting experience because the short film that I've been making, I mean, I, I wrote the script. I, I say I've been making, but really my contribution to it began and ended at the screenplay I wrote 12 months ago, you know, and and then sort of developed with the director and with the, the help of the actors and everything. But then, you know, the the at that point it was then handed off to the director and the cinematographer and the, the cast, the crew and everything, and they've gone off and they've made it. And it's funny because I look at it now and I've been watching the cuts as they've been coming in. And I go at a certain point, it's far more your project than it is mine. You know, like I, I applied my skills and I applied what I know about storytelling and everything. But in terms of the ins and outs of actually making a film. I know nothing about that stuff, you know, like that, that's so far above my pay grade <laughs> that you just kind of let the experts do their thing. So the, the actual discipline of, of writing, no matter what the medium or the genre is, I don't think ever differs that much. I mean, yeah, there's technical things. Obviously you write a screenplay differently to how you write a novel, mm. but the, the, the questions of like theme and story structure and character development and everything, they're, they're always the same. Yeah, and you've heard it here first, mums and dads and parents, uh, less decapitations in the middle grade. So we're good to go. Yes, so you can read that and your children will not be traumatised. Much. <laughs> much. I was about to say much. much. <laughs> now, we talked about the writing process changing a little bit. I want to know about character development. Character is really important in your novels. And we talked about Maggie and we talked about Charlotte. How has your development of characters evolved over time with your writing? That's a great question that I don't know if I know the answer to. Um, I mean, I guess it's my process of developing character has always been that I will start with a few key traits in mind. But then the reality is it's kind of like, you know, if you meet somebody in real life and you can be told who that person is beforehand, like say that you're going to meet somebody named Joe and somebody says, to you, okay, so just so you know, Joe is really friendly, but don't ever bring up um, bagels, let's say, you know, Joe's got a real thing about bagels and that's like a, you know, a source of pain and trauma for him and everything. So don't ever bring that up. Otherwise he's very friendly. He makes a lot of jokes and 
he can get a bit sad when he drinks. Yeah, well, whatever you, whatever you Please want. Please don't tell me that, Gabe, because all now I can think about is bagels when I see Joe. I do. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't bring them up around him though. He hates that thing. But, but you know what I mean. It's, it's kind of like so. So you can be told all of these traits about a person mm. beforehand, but that won't ultimately inform your experience of getting to know that person that much. Like you'll go and you'll meet Joe, and you'll learn more about him, and you'll discover him, you get to know him, and you'll learn about the depths and the subtleties, and ultimately those small kind of preparatory things that you were given can't fully capture the scope of who that person is without you getting to know them intimately and personally over time. So really my process of developing character is that like, yeah, I will know a few things, but I will also learn far more about that character through writing them and through developing them through spending time with them than I ever could in the preparation standpoint, because at a certain point there is something, uh, there is always something kind of organic at play when you're writing, I think. And you know, you do sort of have to let the character speak to you a little bit and let the story speak to you and kind of figure out who they are, what their voice is. And sometimes it takes work. You know, I mean, Charlotte took me a bit longer to kind of crack and I've been trying to tell her story for a very long time. Whereas Maggie was one of those characters who, as I've said on many, many interviews before, the moment I started writing her, she just clicked into place. Like I never really had to give that much thought to who Maggie was because she kind of came into the story with such an aggressive force of personality that it was more like, whoa, okay, you're basically already there. I just have to figure out who you are and how to write you. But then she would be like, no, this is how you do it. And that, that was kind of it. Whereas other characters aren't that easy. And that often I think speaks to who they are as people, you know, and like, and the characters who are a bit more reticent, who are a bit more fearful and who don't necessarily show all their cards at once tend to be the tough nuts to crack. And so, so yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you that here's like a five-step how-to guide to character development, but for me, it really is a process of just like learning who they are through writing them. And that's been the same for you, your whole writing career? All the way, always, no, absolutely always. It's interesting yeah. how the process has changed, the development of characters has remained much the same. What about the editing process? When that comes back from your editor, structural edits are, you know, they're wonderful because we know it's going to make the book better, but they're a little bit of pain. How, how have you evolved in that uh, area? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that my approach to editing kind of remains the same as it was with The Hunted, which is like I, I get the structural edit and I read the notes and I just go, oh, I get to take credit for all of this, you know? Like, And I've said that before, you know, that's not a, that's not a new thought on my part, but like, but there is something really, there, there is an enormous relief in the fact that you can finish a book and you can think it's perfect, but you always know, particularly if you've written a few things, you always know that it's not perfect because you can't see it clearly. You can't see all the details. And then an editor comes in and a gifted editor, and I've been lucky to work with many of them, will be able to point out all of the glaring blind spots and all the things that are missing and all the parts that have to be reworked and rethought through and everything. And there is, when I say relief, I mean, it's the knowledge that you're in safe hands. It's the knowledge that you're working with somebody who cares about the work and understands what your intentions are and is helping from an external perspective to guide you to realize them. I mean, your editor kind of is your best friend when you're working through a book and it, it often is, it, it really is a partnership. And I do kind of wonder if books shouldn't have, you know, the author's name and then the editor's name there as well, because the editor ends up being responsible for so much of what makes a book work. So right now, I think if anything, the only way that my approach to editing has changed is that I think I'm just kind of more willing to put myself in their hands a little bit. Like I don't, I, I'm probably not as obsessive about getting the book note perfect when I deliver it 
because it won't ever be no perfect. Like as it can be as good as I can make it, but I think I'm now a bit more aware of the fact that like I don't need to stress that much over making it good because at a certain point you just won't be able to see it anymore, and that actually does the book more harm than good. And to kind of deliver it to an editor and say to them, you know, because it is vulnerable. Like they're they're always going to they're always going to see things that you're not sure of, or things that you're uncomfortable about, or things that are really raw. And so once you kind of get to a place of trust with an editor, you're kind of willing to say, all right, here's the manuscript, and I'll often list off the things that I think need work. And I'm like, look, these are the problems I think the book has. Just so you know, I'm aware of them. I can't find the solution anymore because I'm too close to it. Um, Let me know what you think. Do you think they're problems? Do you think they're not problems? Do you have a different perspective on that? And that's kind of what I'll do as opposed to trying to fix everything before I deliver it. Because it is a collaboration and, you know, you you actually are able to kind of ask them for help in those instances. Yeah, I love all of that, particularly the um, do I get to take credit for it and their name should be on the front cover. I'm starting to think that myself. Um, I'm actually going through my very first structural edit. It's a bit different when you work with picture books for a JFIC. And I just the whole way I felt like that my editor has my back. And isn't that just yeah, a they nice do. They feeling? Absolutely do. Yeah. yeah, it's like we're all on and the same page this- here to make this as good as it can be. And like, then she gives you all these amazing ideas that, like you said, I get to take credit for. <laughs> Oh, it's insane. It's like, it's, it's, it's kind of like legalized plagiarism. It's great. But, um, but except for you, like, anyway, um, but, but it is funny, you know, because people often ask me like, you know, at festivals or interviews or whatever, it's like, you know, how do you go with tough feedback? And I'm like, well, I mean, obviously you, we would all love it if we wrote everything note perfect the first time, but we don't. And it's like, in the end, it's like, I would never understand. I would never understand a writer who was, funny about taking difficult feedback because I would kind of go, well, don't you want the book to be as good as it possibly can be? You know, like I just kind of would be a bit confused by, by, by any reluctance to take on board notes that are in the end going to be a net positive for your work. So no, to me, I have no qualms with like tough notes and tough feedback because it just means that what goes out in the world has a better chance of being well-received, which, you know, leads to a good result for everyone involved. I could not agree with you more. And it is tough sometimes. And sometimes you think, oh, how did I miss that? You know, am I not, <laughs> you know, a better writer than that? But I think that's why, you know, it is a collaboration and we all work together to make it the best possible thing that it can be. So, yeah, I, I actually um, I love getting feedback even when it's really painful. <laughs> oh, look, I, and, and maybe this is like, you know, exposing a slightly masochistic streak on my part or something, but the older I've gotten, the more I love bad reviews. Yeah. Like, and, and I don't know where this has come from. It's like, All I right, so I'm logging on now. Gabe, I'll give you a scathing review to make oh, yeah, you feel please, better. Oh, yeah, please, tear it to shreds. Um, absolutely <laughs> savage it. Um, no, it's like I, I, I kind of like, and, and I don't know why that is. It's like maybe part of it's because um, I, I've learned to have a little bit of separation from reviews in that one bit of advice I got at film school, which I really hold on to, is if you believe all your good reviews, you've got to believe all your bad ones too. And that I think is really good because I certainly have had a tendency to focus on the good ones and not the bad ones. But I think the bad ones are really helpful because you read them and you kind of go like, even if they're really unpleasant and just nasty and mean-spirited, which sometimes they are, but sometimes they they truly just are, I really wanted to like this, but I didn't. And here are the reasons. And you can look at that and you can kind of, you know, you can say, you know, screw you and give a middle finger to them or everything. And, and everything or you can read it and kind of go well do they have a point and you know if i can remove the vitriol if, if indeed vitriol is is even in there then is there something of value i can take away from it and a lot of the time there isn't because a lot of the time if somebody's going to give you a one-star review it just means that your writing isn't for them you know like i've seen 
so many one-star reviews of The Hunted that I've just kind of gone, well, you know, I read it and I go, I'm quite confident that I achieve what I set out to achieve with that book, but what I set out to achieve wasn't what you wanted to read. And, and that's okay. You know, that's fine. There are things that aren't for me as well. But at the same time, it's like every now and then I'll read one of those bad reviews and I'll kind of go, yeah, you know what? Like that's, that's fair enough. Like there's actually a really good point there or there's something I hadn't thought about there or whatever. And it just means something I'll factor in for the next book or I'll think about next time. And, and you know, like you're never going to get it right every time. You know, we, we all, I mean, if, if we all knew the formulas of writing only ever really good books, then we'd all be Stephen King. Like, well, Stephen King's had some sinkers in, in his time, you know, like it, it happens, but I think that one thing I've kind of come to realize the older I've gotten is that nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Nobody sets out to write a bad book. Like it's, it's, you know, when, when people get so angry and contemptuous towards, and, and I was guilty of that myself for a long time, but when people get so outraged towards a piece of media that isn't to their exact specifications, I kind of go, yeah, but like, did you actually think that they set out to offend you or upset you? Like, no, chances are they poured everything they had into this. And, you know, either it wasn't your taste or something went wrong behind the scenes or there was a problem and their best efforts weren't enough. And, you know, we're all human in the end and that does happen. So I don't know. It's like, I, I just, I feel like I've kind of come to a very Zen place with reviews, weirdly. I love, I love all of that. I'm not there yet. Definitely not there yet, but it's admirable and impressive. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's healthy because, like, I remember having a conversation with Kyle Perry about this at one point. And he was like, oh, I, I never read Goodreads. And I was like, I read it every day. <laughs> like, I check it I every single day. And I, and think, I think when I grow up, Gabe, I'm going to be just like you because I do love the hard <laughs> editing. I've just got a, you know, my very small writing career that's been a whole year. Um, once I stop being a baby writer, you know, I might just hit up those one reviews too and just go, yeah, I can do this. So we'll check back later see how you go it's um <laughs> look it's a, again i don't i don't necessarily think like I'm, I'm trying to justify it overly by kind of being like here's oh, all the really to. zen good reasons for it but then i kind of go like no i think maybe i just have like a viciously masochistic mm. streak and mm. but i don't know it's like when i like weirdly now it's like when i read a good review i kind of go oh that's really nice and I, i'm chuffed and i love it and everything but it's when i read a bad one i'm gonna go oh okay what do you, what have you got to say about it like it's you know, curiosity isn't bit, it Totally. And sometimes you're a bit skeptical about good reviews because you kind of go like, maybe it's because we all have like a slightly self-loathing streak and we sort of go like, yeah, but I don't think I'm that good. Whereas the bad ones, maybe that's when you feel like someone's really being honest with you and really engaged with the work, which, which by the way, is not true because I know like, I know that a lot of the good reviews I've gotten have been from people who are really delving in and really just kind of celebrating it. And that's amazing. But this is less about what anyone's saying and more about my own, you know, deep seated insecurities and coming back to that theme of, you know, paranoia that oh, I you was know, heading there next right. game. I was heading that intrusive, <laughs> yeah. anxious voice. Yeah, that's it. That's the controlling idea. <laughs> and those one star reviews are like, see, I told anxiety, see, I told you. <laughs> yes, I'm right. I am a hack. They know it. They figured me out. <laughs> so getting a little bit personal here, writing a book like the caretaker and having an anxious energy about you as I have myself, was it cathartic for you? That's a really good question. Um, a little bit, but, but I weirdly, I kind of think that like, I think the catharsis of the caretaker has been kind of in seeing how well it's done because I was really scared about this book, mm -hmm. you know, like I really thought I'd screwed up this time. Like I really thought I, I had a quasi panic attack at one point 
when it was like on the way to the printers and I was like, there's so much I want to change. I don't think it's good. I don't think it works. I don't think it holds together. I think it's boring. I think it's messy. Like, you know, I really truly thought this time I'd screwed up and, and I delivered a really bad book. And it honestly, it wasn't until QBD picked it for their book of the month that I was like, Oh, okay. Maybe it's all right. Maybe it's okay here. And then the first reviews came in and I was like, okay, and then I went to, and then I did my book tour and I spoke to readers who'd already read the book and really loved it. And I was like, okay. And I've gone around to all the QBD stores and I've met, not, not all of them yet. I'm still planning on hitting a few more, but, um, but like meeting the staff members and seeing their passion and excitement for the book, you kind of go, oh, wow, they're not, they're not lying to me. They actually really <laughs> like this. And, and then finding out, which I did the other day, that it sold more in its first two weeks and the hunted did in the same period, wow. you know, and the hunted being the book that completely changed my life. And you just sort of go, Oh, I think it's okay. And <laughs> I think that like all of that stress and all of that work and all of the kind of personal aspects that went into it have kind of amounted to something and have kind of proved worthwhile. And, and there's immense catharsis in that because, you know, there is always a fear in putting, any of your vulnerabilities on the line in any way, shape or form. And I mean, that's ultimately what the vocation of writing is about. It's about kind of exposing, you know, the things that eat at you and things that you're vulnerable about in one form or another. And that can feel quite exposing, but to, I don't know, to kind of look at the response and be like, by and large, it's been not only accepted, but it's been embraced by some people is enormously cathartic and enormously satisfying. Mm. And there's a huge relief to be found in that I think yeah absolutely and I never thought I'd give you know thanks to anxiety self-doubt and self-loathing but here we are making it a better book yeah that's it you know it's like (laughs) would I be as good a writer if I was less neurotic probably not no I definitely not I mean I think creativity and a bit of all that stuff goes hand in hand fortunately unfortunately I think that's just yeah exactly it's two sides of the same coin always. <laughs> I think so I think so I don't think there's anything we can do about it but no. it's interesting because I did read the caretaker while I was in um a very strange period of the last few weeks where I was in a pretty deep anxious hole and it was actually cathartic to read and that's why I asked you was a cathartic to write because although you know there's a lot of paranoia up to you get to you know the two-thirds I felt like it was a bit of a middle finger to anxiety because it's like well actually I can kick your ass. <laughs> yeah. And, and see, see, that's like an enormous relief to hear. And I'm so glad you said that because, because I think, I think that is what the, the journey of the book is. And I think mm. it is about somebody who, who, you know, is always obsessing over worst case scenarios and they all come true and she, she gets through it and she wins and she like, and not to so much spoil the ending or anything, cause I, I'm not going to talk about how she gets there or, or what the final outcome is, but it, it does kind of, it, it basically there is a victory of sorts in the way the book ends. And, you know, it's not to say that she won't ever be anxious again. It's not to say that she won't be scared again, or that, you know, the, the dangers won't rise up again at some point. But I think that is part of dealing with anxiety is it's not, it's, it's never, there's never going to be a permanent solution. There's never going to be a permanent win. It's more about the, the wins that you have every day in just managing it. And, I'm not saying that that's, you know, a one-to-one analogy for what the caretaker is talking about, but it's certainly very present in the book, I think. And so to hear that there was a cathartic feeling in reading it is, is just 
you know, hugely, hugely flattering and, a, and just a really kind thing to say. Well, it's just interesting because I read it at a particular point of the last few weeks where it was kind yeah. of matching my own energy. And yeah, I, think, right. I think you're right. That's, you know, you say that the more wins you have and the darker places you go and then you have another win, you kind of look back and go, no, no, I've done this before. And even when you're right in the middle of it and you're right, you know, rock bottom, you're like, I can do this again. You don't know how long it's going to take. You don't know how you're going to get there, but it's that kind of optimism that you go, yeah, I, I can do this. So I think, I don't know for me, I think it was just a weird time that I read it, but that's where, where it, that was my experience of reading it anyway. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for the weird time, but I'm glad that the book was at least somewhat, you know, <laughs> helpful in that weird time or at least aligned with it in some way. Anytime I can give, you know, the stuff for you to anxiety, I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Now, I ask you this every time you come here, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you again, uh, because I think, again, you know, you've talked about how you evolve so much as a writer and even, you know, your editing process or your ability to take on feedback or reading those one star reviews like you have evolved even over, you know, a, shoot, a few short years. So why do you continue to create? I think at this point, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of had the quasi facetious answer in the past of saying you know i write because i'm not good at anything else or or whatever and and that that's partly facetious and partly true like it, it's it sounds dismissive but it's it's you know in maybe not so blunt a term basically the core of it but i think nowadays it's like how can i continue to challenge myself you know there's one chapter in the caretaker uh chapter 28 i think which when i came into writing it it's the most kind of wild and experimental piece of writing I'd ever done. And I knew going into the book that that was how I was going to deliver a certain twist and a certain reveal in the book. But I, and I knew that doing it in the way I wanted to do it would mean really seriously stretching myself as a writer. And I honestly wasn't sure I was capable of it. And I set out to write it and I was like, as I was writing it, you know, I wrote it in two days and I was like, this is either the best thing I've ever written or the worst thing I've ever written. Like, uh, and there, there really isn't much in between. And then I found that for the next two days, I couldn't write. Like I just, I just could not write. I was really, really burnt out by it. Like somehow I just kind of like stretched every writing muscle I had in writing this one chapter. And to me, it's the, it's the chapter that coheres the book and it's the moment that makes the book. And then when I kind of delivered it to, my editors, my publisher, and that bit of feedback came back again and again, that, that this chapter was something really special. I was like, okay, cool. Like there, there's something really exciting in that because this is an area where I've really done something I've never done before. I've taken a massive risk and it seems to have paid off. And that recurring feedback kind of keeps coming back with it. And so, you know, to know that you haven't necessarily peaked yet and to know that everything is kind of a step in a journey and that there are, potentially greater horizons ahead in terms of your craft. And there are challenges that you, you know, you, you always want to swing for the fences and sometimes you've screwed up and sometimes you won't, but the moments where you swing for the fences and you realize that you've, you've hit those are really, really exhilarating. And those are really, really satisfying. And I, I want to keep challenging myself. You know, I want to do more of this stuff. Like I, I want to write a TV show. I want to write a film. I want to do all of those. And, um, and I want to write books that aren't thrillers. I want to write like a drama book. I want to write something that maybe takes, maybe even like takes a slow burn approach even further and relies more on prose, which hasn't always been my strongest suit, you know? So whether I'm capable of those things or not, I don't know. I have to write them to find out, but it is 
the answering of those questions or the exploration of those questions that excites me to keep going and to keep taking the next steps. I love all of that. And I can't wait for what happens next. But most of all, I just love this conversation. I had, you know, my usual questions, which I don't even know why I bothered, Gabe. Um, <laughs> but I really like how we've really, you know, got on this journey of the evolution of you as a writer and, you know, how you how you write and how you develop characters and then how this story paralleled with your own um, and my own anxious energy. So I think it's just been, again, one of these amazing conversations that have gone on this natural tangent of ours, but it's actually super interesting. It always is. And um, hopefully you can both, you know, understand us because we speak 50,000 miles an hour. Um, You might just have to listen to it at half speed, but that's okay. That's right. People do that now. It's fine. It's fine. Usually they listen to it double speed so they can get yeah, through right. the episode quicker. <laughs> maybe not now, Case. Maybe I mean, we're, we're basically already at double speed. So, you know. It's true. It's true. This actual conversation might give you a bit of anxiety, but welcome to our world, Gabe. <laughs> welcome to our world. Yep, that's it. Sorry. <laughs> this is how we roll. <laughs> but thank you so much. I love, um, you know, always speaking to you, whether it's in person or on the podcast, because I know we always just go on these really interesting tangents. So I thank you again for your time. And it was a, a great episode this time because we also got to BYOD because I got a new dog and my dog's just like your dogs. So they had a little yeah, bit of meat over screen. <laughs> So, they just kind of blankly looked at the screen and like, what is this? What are you putting yeah, me up for? They <laughs> but, really had no idea what was going on, but it was exciting for us. <laughs> absolutely. That's it. I mean, that that's kind of, you know, isn't, doesn't that just kind of summarise a dog's life at a certain point <laughs> of being like, all these things are exciting for us. Like I get to dress them up and put these things on them and they look so cute. And the dog's are like, what are you doing? Yeah, Why are you whatever. doing this to me? Can you just leave me, me alone? Give me some food and a nap and a pat. That's all that's I all want. That's all I need. That's, yeah, that's that's it. It's a big three. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Gabe, and congratulations on the caretaker. Another amazing book. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for having me again. <laughs>